You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview author Stephen Sautner, who's been an active contributor to the New York Times Outdoors column and has written a couple of books on the subject of fly fishing. His most recent um, is A Cast in the Woods, a story of fly fishing, fracking, and floods in the heart of trout country. Um, highly recommend this book if you enjoy uh, reading about fishing, um, conservation, and the environment. And also, if you've ever considered uh, buying that cabin in the woods for, for weekend getaways for trout fishing. So, hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies. Profit sustainably. For more information, visit EmergerStrategies.com. Well, cool. Well, well, Stephen, I thought we'd just, you know, get started with, um, if you want to kick things off, just tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and your background and how you started getting into writing. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I would call myself like an angler storyteller. Yep. Um, I was a contributor to the New York Times Outdoors column for about 15 years. Wow. And um, I actually edited a book for them called Upriver and Downstream. And that was kind of a best of sort of my favorite uh, columns over the years. And it wasn't just my own. It was a bunch of people. There was a point now, unfortunately, the Times Outdoors column has kind of gone away, but there was a time where it ran twice a week and there was a whole stable of um, freelance outdoor writers who wrote about everything all over the world from, you know, fishing for tiger fish in Zambia, which is a story I got to write, um, to local trout fishing, to whatever. And so... Um, you know, I proposed doing kind of a greatest hits and they went for that. So that book came out in 2007. And, um, then in 2016, I wrote a book called, um, fish on fish off, um, which is kind of like the perils of DIY angling. I'm a completely self-taught fly fisherman and spin fisher and ice fisherman and everything. And, um, you know, I had sort of accumulated all sorts of experiences over a career of fishing. And um, so I wrote a book about that. And then, um, I, you know, I I write for some of the magazines. Um, I've kind of stepped that up a little bit, and I've been writing for Angler's Journal and American Angler. And I wrote something recently for This Is Fly, which is a fun online magazine. And I had something in Fly Fish Journal recently. It actually was an excerpt from my next book, which was, which is, um, a cast in the woods. And that's a story about my cabin that's up in the Catskills in, uh, a town called Hancock, New York. Okay. And so that's kind of the snapshot of my, of my writing. Um, you know, my full-time job, I work for the Bronx zoo and, uh, I write about wildlife and wild places. You know, the Bronx zoo has conservation programs all around the world with scientists doing incredible work, saving everything from tigers to gorillas to humpback whales and churning out a lot of cool studies and discovering things. And so my job is to sort of put those folks 
um, in, in touch with the media. So I'm, I'm kind of like a press guy, you know, I pitch stories, I work with, with journalists all around the world and, and sort of talk about the great work that, that we do. Wow. That's really cool. Um, and, and so I, I, I guess on, I, I've, since I've read, um, the, the, your, your latest, A Cast in the Woods, um, mm-hmm. I looked into your other books. I haven't read them yet, but they're, they're on my to-do list. Um, Good. B- but A Cast in the Woods, however, just for anyone, you know, the, the literally tens of people that listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, it's it's it was really good uh, in terms of I, I found it really humorous. It was funny and it was also like because I mean that's kind of like the fantasy I think for a lot of people like yeah man like I just want to get a cabin in the woods, just yeah just have uh, fish in my backyard, get to know the area super well that's and it. and I I just really loved that component of it because it was so relatable to me. I'm sure it's relatable Thank to you. other people too. Well, you know. So the story of the cabin, um, you have to, you have to back up about 10 years. Uh, so I bought the cabin in 2003 and you actually have to go back to 1991. I was, I was thinking about how this whole thing started and it started with, um, the first wild trout I ever caught on a fly rod in the Catskill mountains. Actually it was the first wild trout I ever caught period on a fly rod. And, uh, it was a. It was like my first ever mayfly hatch. The first time I ever saw rising trout, um, and I hooked a 16-inch uh, rainbow trout, a wild rainbow trout, and I had never hooked a fish that, frankly, got so upset about me hooking it. <laughs> um, it it jumped and ran and jumped and ran and jumped and ran and then it broke me off and and I sat there in the river going, oh my god, that was like a it was like I never had experience like that before. I had done a lot of fishing up to that point, but I did not fly fish. And I sort of like, it's a longer story, but I picked up a flyer. I bought a flyer right off a friend of mine and I decided I'm going to learn how to cast this in the backyard. And then this first experience in 1991 with this rising trout, this 16 inch rainbow trout that I lost. And I, I think all anglers have this moment where they hook this like seminal fish, whether it's like a bonefish or a tarpon or whatever, and they go like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. That's, this is what I'm going to do. And for me, it was wild trout in the Catskill Mountains. And so for the next 10 plus years, I would, I would do day trips or I would do camping trips or I'd sleep in my car. From my home, from where I live, the Catskills are probably about a two and a half hour, 125, 130 mile drive. And so I, but I did it for about a decade, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And then I got this idea in the early 2000s. I was like, I got to get a cabin. I got to get a fishing cabin. This is then now, this is the thing. I'm going to get a fishing cabin. I'm going to fish more. I'm going to drive less. And so my wife, who, who loves to fish too, you know, we, we just started looking and, um, it took about two years to find just, just the right cabin. And, uh, it was surprising. You would think like in the Catskill mountains, it'd be like all these little cool little cabins, but there weren't, there were surprisingly very few. Like I go to like a realtor and they go, Oh, we got just the place. And they'd show me like a split level house, like from the suburbs. And I'd be like, I want a cat. Or they'd show me like literally a shack with nothing in it, just a, just a, just a shack, no electricity, running water, anything. And I was like, that's, 
too rustic somewhere in the middle. You know, we've got to find like a happy medium. And um, then and finally, after a lot of research, I found this place. It was a, it was a 1940s, um, you know, vintage hunting cabin um, on 14 acres of unbroken woods, like these beautiful hemlocks, uh, hemlock forests with these great rock formations out of Lord of the Rings. And it was, it was just a beautiful place. And, and it had a quarter mile of, of wild trout stream flowing through it. And so this was it. And, and not only did I have this small, very small wild trout stream, but I was very close to the Delaware, um, the East branch of the Delaware, the West branch of the Delaware, the beaver kill, the willow Emock river, all of these, you know, like the cradle of American fly fishing was all like in my backyard. And so I thought to myself, well, this is it. I'm going to just, I'm just going to fish whatever the hell I want to fish. And, um, and that's what I thought I was getting myself into. And then the book is about how, um, as it turns out, owning a simple, you know, vintage hunting cabin and a quarter mile of trout stream and 14 acres of woods is very, uh, it's the opposite of simple. And, uh, I find out firsthand from all of these various things that, that happen that I'm happy to get into. Well, I mean, it was just really funny to me that like, to your point where you're talking about like, okay, I'm going to simplify my life and we're going to be in this cabin and it's really, you know, we don't need much. And then, you know, people aren't, are always quick to, for, to, to have that idea. But when reality sets in, when it's like, Oh my God, like this is shelter for rodents. Like, you know, they're, this is, this is like heaven for them. Like, you know, people don't, people don't, you don't ever hear that. So it was really hilarious to me to, in reading the book that that was, you know, that you, you went in depth about, you know, what you had to do to, to, uh, uh, rid the, the, the cabin of, of, of rodents, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I probably killed, I don't know, hundreds of mice, <laughs> um, and they come and go, you know, some years are worse than other years. Um, but it got really bad. And I, I write about this when, um, my, ma- uh, my, my, my wife, uh, had a mouse, uh, shit on her pillow in the middle of the night. And, uh, she, she woke up and she, uh, she woke up in the middle of the night. I'm sound asleep. And, and she felt something sort of tugging in her hair and she's laying there and she's like, oh, I'm imagining this. This isn't happening. Right. And she's, and also she's like, no, no, there, there actually is something. And she's petrified you know, she can't move. And then finally she sits up and she looks around and she's like, what the, and there's nothing there. And she turns on the light and there was a mouse turd right on her pillow, right where she was sleeping. And, um, that's when like, it was just all at war. And, uh, that's when I just, Oh my God, I just set, you know, dozens of snap traps and, you know, snap traps are fine, but the best trap of all is the bucket trap, which, you know, I don't know if, um, you've heard of, but like you take a coffee can and you suspend it above like a spackle bucket off a rope and it ro- and you drill a hole in the, in the top and bottom and it rolls like a log roll and you put peanut butter on the top and bottom you fill it with water, you put a little ramp up it. I mean, it's this very Rube Goldberg thing, you know, but, um, the thing that's beautiful about it is it just keeps trapping them, you know, just the mice. So, you know, the mouse one falls in the water drowns, then mouse two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 10, 11, 12. And I think my, my record is a dozen in one night. And we, so there's a crawl space in our cabin we'd put it up there. And the next morning I would just take it out and just go, Oh, 
and pour out those mice in the stream where I'm sure the crayfish just loved it. And uh, I just did it until I stopped trapping them. And then, but you know, and, and that's, like I said, they come and go and you just trap them. You, you trap out the population until it's gone. And then the next year you're sleeping and all of a sudden you hear the scurrying. You're like, okay, there's, they're back. And then you put the bucket up and you trap some more. And it's just, it's part of living up there, you know, like everyone who has a cabin up there has my stories. I don't really think mine are any better or worse than others, except I do. You know, my, my wife might not agree with that since she did have the one in her, on her pillow, but right. you know, it's just part of it. It's just part of it. Well, it was, I had not heard about that trap until I read the book and I was like, it's pretty genius. Um, oh man, you go on YouTube. There's like a million videos on just YouTube of people showing how this thing works, and and they set up trail cameras, and you can see mice falling in the bucket. And <laughs> but it is it's lethal. It is a le- and like I said, you could set it for the weekend and just come back um, and just you know empty out the contents. You know, it's a weekend cabin, so I can set it like on a Sunday and then come back on Friday. And hopefully, it wasn't too hot and they haven't started to decompose too much. But uh, it. It's just a, it's a real, it's a, it is a mouse vacuum is what that thing is. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, the other, so, you know, the, what was interesting to me, obviously, and, and it was just in the Flyfish Journal was the excerpt was, you know, the, the whole fracking component, which I want to kind of dive into a little bit because, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah. Don't, I, I don't know, um, and now I'm drawing a blank, even though I was preparing for this and was what is the oh uh Gasland, right? Isn't that the name of the documentary? Um, yeah. 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 So if you've seen that, then you sort of know like there's some pretty gnarly, nasty stuff going on with, with, with fracking, but this was uh I, I thought your experience was particularly interesting. So without taking anything away from you, I'll I'll let you sort of get give the story there and we can maybe dive in a little bit on, on, on the environmental side of things from there. Sure. Well, um, Josh Fox, who wrote the movie Gasland, you know, um, his place is probably, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 miles from mine in the same deposit called the Marcellus Shale, which is this huge, it's actually an old, um, uh, shallow water sea from the Devonian period. So like uh, 300, 400 million years ago, I forget, um, where, you know, all of these, uh, extinct fish species, which is ironic, uh, that this is what's caused this problem. You know, they died and sank to the bottom of this shallow sea and apparently didn't decompose very much. And then like tectonic plates moved. I mean, we're talking about like you know, hundreds of millions of years of process, you know, mm-hmm. and eventually all of this organic matter in the form of all of these dead fish um, that again died and sank to the bottom but didn't decompose because of the oxygen levels. It wasn't enough for them to decompose, but that turned into this vast gas deposit, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the Marcellus Shale. And the Marcellus Shale goes all the way through Pennsylvania, covers most of Pennsylvania. I think it dips down into Ohio and maybe even a little bit of West Virginia and then comes up into New York. And so when I bought my cabin, I didn't know about any of this stuff because none of this was in play yet, you know? Um, but what I did know was when I, I was buying the cabin and I was getting like paperwork from the previous owner and there was like, you know, like a right of way document in the deed that he worked out with the neighbor. And so there was a document about that and I'm going, okay. And then I see this 
this lease from Arco, the gas company, which now I think is owned by BP. It used to be Atlantic Richfield. Okay. It's this one, this one sheet signed document of like, and I'm like, what is this? And it's, you know, we give the right to Atlantic Richfield to, you know, explore for energy on this property. And, and I'm like, are you kidding me? And this is the, so this is the Catskill Mountains. This is like forests and streams and farms. This is not Texas. This is not the North Slope of Alaska. This is like the last place you'd ever think people would be exploring for, for energy. So anyway, I asked the, the lawyer, now this is before I bought my place, right? So I'm like just kind of gathering up things for the closing and I go, what, what is this? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. So he goes, a long time ago, talking about like back in the 70s mm-hmm. and maybe, I guess, into the 80s, you know, there were some energy companies that were sort of poking around in the Catskills because there was this, there's this shale deposit called the Marcellus Shale. Um, but, you know, they, they thought they could, they could tap into this, but it's like a mile below the surface. They never could figure out how to do it. And so, like, they never did it. And I talked to other landowners and they'd say, yeah, yeah. Every couple of years, these guys would come around and they'd, we'd sign a lease for like a couple of bucks an acre. And it was just like found money. And they would never, they would sign the lease, they'd get a check and that would be the end of it. And then maybe a few years later, they, the lease would, would expire. And then they'd get another lease offer and they'd sign that, but nothing happened. Zero. So fast forward to the early 2000s and the whole hydraulic called high volume hydro- hydraulic fracturing technology was perfected by Halliburton, which is like Dick Cheney's old company. Right. And basically, basically what that did, it was the technology that allowed them to drill down a mile down to the shale and then turn horizontally and drill through the shale and then blast the shale with chemicals and water and sand to rupture all the pockets of gas that would come bubbling up. You know, and that's the technology that they perfected. And when they did that, it like revolutionized the energy industry. And now all of a sudden, all of these inaccessible pockets of shale that were a mile below the surface were all of a sudden accessible. And all, so then beginning in the early 2000s, they started drilling for the Marcellus Shale in, in, in Pennsylvania and, you know, getting a lot of gas out of this stuff. And, and these like hard scrabble farms were signing leases and, 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 you know, all of a sudden they'd have like a gusher of natural gas. And then this whole land rush started and Pennsylvania all of a sudden was booming in these like sleepy little farm towns overnight. All of a sudden, like, you know, the energy companies were, were fighting over who's signing which lease and these lease prices started going crazy. And these farmers with these, you know, hundred acre farms that were barely holding on were like getting, you know, thousands of dollars per acre plus royalties for gas they found. And it was just, it was a complete land rush, you know, like, just like a gold rush almost. And so all of a sudden I find out about this, that it's coming to the Catskills from a neighbor. And, um, I never heard it. And I said, are you kidding me? No, we're going to, it's got a gas. We're going to be drilling for gas all around here. This is going to be great. And right. well, it depended on who, uh, depending on who, who you spoke with. Some people were very excited. I mean, the town where I live in, I, where my cabin is, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's not a wealthy place. It's a hard place to live year round. 
you know, the, the industries up there are logging and bluestone, quarrying for bluestone and like, and like service industry. And like, that's about it. And so, you know, it's, it's, they're looking for economic opportunities. You know, farming is, has, has its ups and downs and logging has its ups and downs and whatever. But so people thought like, this is going to be the same. Some people thought this is going to save our town. We're going to be prosperous, all this other stuff. So as a landowner and someone who cares about the environment and a wildlife guy and all the rest and with a trout stream flowing through their property, I said, well, I got to research this and see what this is all about. And I learned about all of the things. If you ever watch Gasland, all the stuff that they talk about, which begins with the toxic fracking fluids they have to pump below the surface. Um, and then when it comes up, what you do with all that waste disposal, you know, all that, all that waste and, and it's nasty stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just for, oh, please, yeah. for, 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 for anyone that's, you should, it's probably on Netflix or wherever else, you should check out Gasland, but it is yep. the, the, the stuff that they use to actual, so, you know, I guess fracturing is actually in order for them to get through the rock, they have to like like highly pressurized fluid well water doesn't get the job done even though it still yeah. uses like millions or trillions or i i don't know the the right number there but it uses a ridiculous amount of water but because that doesn't millions get of it, gallons yeah yeah like millions of gallons but because they per, can per well per well and then you start adding up all the other wells and who knows what it finally comes to but yeah but then they add all this chemical and, and everything else because that will actually break the rock apart and that's what is the super nasty stuff so anyway sorry to interrupt but i just wanted to no no that's that's fine and so and you know that's just part of it so you got you got you know you have all the toxins from the fracking fluids and what to do with that and radioactivity because a lot of the the shale has like natural radioactivity so then that stuff comes bubbling up mixed in with the with the waste fluids and you have you have now you have radioactive waste that you have to deal with so you got that. You've got um, noise pollution. You've got light pollution. They flare these wells at night, and it's like a supernova. You know, they they flare the contaminants out of the. I mean, it's a, it's basically it's 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 a it's an industrial process. It's it's like, and you know, a neighbor signing a lease. It'd be like you know a neighbor coming up to you and going, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" Um, so like. You know, instead of like, hey, I'm going to have a deck built on the back of my house, okay, just letting you know. It's like, I'm going to be opening up a factory right next door. And, like, you know, that, that produces toxic waste. So see a neighbor. You know, yeah. That's like kind of what. Um, and then there's all these other issues that, that, you know, you hear when you hear about fracking, you hear about, like, the toxic waste and and then the flaring of wells and noise pollution, all that stuff. Then there's you know, more subtle things like, like forest fragmentation. So every time they punch in, they go into the woods and they punch in a new, a new clearing, um, and all the infrastructure that goes in there and all the humanity that goes in there. And then that well is done. And then you go to the next one. And, and what you do is you take in the Catskills, one of the beautiful parts about the Catskills and what makes it such a special place. It has lots of unbroken woods Hmm. and, living in those unbroken woods are wildlife that only like unbroken woods. And I'm a birder. So, and I think all trout fishermen, by the way, should be birders. And I'm surprised more aren't birders. Cause to me, it's like, so part of the trout fishing experience are birds. But anyway, um, 
a lot of the migratory birds that come from the tropics, um, like various warbler species and, and things like hermit thrushes and winter wrens and all these really cool birds that have these great songs and all this stuff, they are very sensitive to fragmentation of forest. So my 14 acres, because I'm a birder and I've got friends who are birders, you know, we've, we've cataloged some really amazing birds that nest behind my cabin. And many of those species are the same ones that are going to wink out if you start fragmenting the forest. They just don't like disturbance. They'll just, they'll just stop nesting there. So you combine all that stuff, all that whole picture of fracking. And I thought, I said, well, this is so not compatible with why I have this cabin and I'm a trout fisherman and, you know, a naturalist and a birder. Like, none of this is compatible in my opinion. So I didn't get in my neighbor's faces who signed, how dare you? I mean, that's just, it's their business. They, they, and I don't fault them for signing at all. I really don't. Um, they felt like they believed fracking could be done in a way that wasn't harmful. I didn't believe that. So what do you do? You use like the public process that's available. And so for me, that meant like go to public hearings, write letters, testify at public hearings, um, go to Albany, the capital of New York state and like go to like lobbying day and lobby your elected officials and all this stuff. Like, and again, like I brought my place to fish, you know, And now, now I'm like this friggin' fractivist, <laughs> and, and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. But you know, the, here's the thing: the larger lesson I learned is, you, you know, now you you can't, um, if you're going to own a piece of property, or if you're going to, you know, your this stream is going to be your home water, and and it's this whole like rep your water thing, which I know you guys have embraced, which is really cool. I mean, it's you have to be, you have to be an advocate for it. You can't just fish and go home and just fish and go home because there's always going to be a threat to it. It's just the way it is. There's too many people wandering around the planet with some of which have really bad ideas of what to do to a trout stream and a landscape. So, so, you know, you always have to fight for it. Um, and, and so that, so that's what I did. And, and, and I, and I wrote letters and I went to the hearings and all that stuff. And it was a several year drawn out, very scary battle um, and eventually New York state banned fracking, which was, which was awesome. And, uh, it, we, and one other thing I want to point out, uh, you know, I was offered a lease to sign, you know, several leases. I was getting offers. I forget how many I got. I got a bunch of offers though, you know, sign here, um, you know, up, you know, 2,500 bucks an acre. And I was like, holy I mean, this could pay for my cabin almost. Yeah. It's a, and, and, you know, but then I was like, I'm not, I think, how could I, how could I do that? I'm like selling the brook trout and the rainbow trout, you know, I'm like selling their souls for what, you know, I just, I had no interest in it. To me, it was just, there was, wasn't a question about it, but, um, you know, that was part of it too. You know, people were, and, and the interesting part of it was, um, people that were against it. Some of them were like, you know, from New York city and they fish up there and then people were like, well, you don't, you know, what do you, what do you care? You just fish up here. But I was as a landowner, I kind of felt like I had a little more to say. I had a little more at stake. And, and, uh, when I argued, when I wrote my letters and when I testified, I was very quick to point out, I am a property owner here 
and um, I don't want it. You know, it's not like it's uh, I'm from downstate and all I want are the benefits of trout fishing, and but I have really no other stake in it. I had a personal stake in it, um, which was, you know, an interesting perspective buying a cabin and being part, being on the front lines of that battle. So, well, and, and you know, they, it, it, it it was like, like I said, like New York State, New York State banned it, and um, which was great. Uh, but I know. Like it's not going away. Like the energy companies will always be eyeballing up there. It's like forbidden fruit for them. They want to get to it somehow. So you kind of always have to stay on it. And and every now and then you'll hear about you know energy company X wants to put a pipeline through. And you know I, I just so you can't ever turn your back on it. You can't ever say like oh we won let's go trout fishing and never worry about it ever again. It's just you can't. You always have to sort of be on guard about it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that—that's the you know. So, so a couple things that, that I think you know. One is, I think it's a, it, it was a good example of you know, from from my perspective, and this is this is totally generalized in, intentionally, but like there's really three threats to to fisheries everywhere. You know, it, it, it's population, mm-hmm. it's policy. And it's pollution yeah. in the form of whether that's plastic or greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, for the most part, those are three big ones. And I, I kind of like call them the three P's. But I think your story was such a good example of showing that, you know, yes, you can influence policy in a way that um, helps protect the fishery. And it was a good success story that I think we need more of because that's one thing, you know, as – you know, as someone who's, uh, you know, an environmentalist and a conservationist, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the negative hype. And I think when there's a when there's a success story like the one in your book, um, that it should be noted and, um, you know, not brushed under the rug because it, it should be celebrated. But to your point, you can't ever turn your back on it because you know that they're not going to that's not just end all be all like they'll. They're, they're going to... The war isn't over. Right, I mean, the right. war, the battle, well, that battle was definitely won, but there's, you know, there is a war of uh, the natural resources of, you know, the world's natural resources. Let's face it. I mean, there's a, there's a war going on, whether it's, you know, logging or energy exploitation, and, and, you know, there's one side has one view of how it should be done, and the other has another view of how it should be done, and that's, that's I mean, come on, you see it every day. Yeah. Whether, you know, um, drilling in the Arctic is, you know, in that tax bill that was, that was kind of snuck in at the last minute. I just, I... I can't believe that wasn't made into a bigger deal, that, you know, let's, that, that, there is a, it's on the table. It's not even on the table. It's actually going to happen if, if it could very easily happen that they will drill for energy that we don't really need in the most pristine wilderness in the United States. I just find that I just beyond shameful that, that some people think that's a good thing. Oh yeah, we need the, we don't need the energy. If we could, we could save that by minimal conservation or go, going toward renewables or whatever. And I, you know, there's so much of it. It just drives, it drives you crazy. And the thing that really drives me nuts about this whole thing is like there, there is a, there is a subset of, of outdoors people, um, that kind of side toward like, Oh yeah, we need the energy, you know, let's drill on our public lands. And yeah, and I just don't see how they can compatibly like 
really love fishing in the outdoors and think that that's good and that you got and, and that's something uh, that they they should be on the other side and fight for like no we got to fight for clean water and 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 public access to our lands and, and and not exploit it and all that other stuff and I'm shocked sometimes I'm really shocked at my fellow anglers that they don't that they're the, the views they have are, are so like, wow, really? I thought like we're all fishermen and we all, we all think a certain way and, it, and we all really value and cherish our, our rivers and streams. And, and, but apparently that's not the case. I don't know where these guys are coming from, but no, it, it, it's, it, it's not the case at all. And I mean, and that's happening, you know, with, um, offshore drilling and, you know, off, off the Atlantic coast. And I mean, people, you know, and, and, and the, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and, you know, everyone in this community completely opposes it because it's like, look, I mean, it, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when there's a leak. And when there's a leak, we're a tourist yeah. town. Like, so yeah. if you remove tourism dollars from people who are just coming to enjoy the city and the food and, you know, the how, how beautiful it is here, then it, it's absolutely not worth it, especially when there are viable alternatives, that exists solutions yeah. exist to it yeah. like i don't like i don't it's like it's being jammed down your throat that like no no, no we, we we're gonna it's you know we're gonna need we need this and what they're really saying is we're the number one exporter of oil in the world now so we're right. gonna we're, <laughs> that's what they're really saying so well while that may be your opinion we know what's best and we're gonna keep drilling which is you know, yeah it's crazy to me it is. I mean, I think that um, it was celebrated during uh, the union that, you know, we're the number one XR1. Yay! It's like, we got to get away from this stuff. This, I mean, I, look, I drive to work. I drive a car. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I use fossil fuels. I do. I mean, there's a, that's just the way it is. No doubt. Uh, however, I do, I do recognize that the the things going on with the climate and all the rest of it, and that it, it, we really have to move away from this any way we can. And, and um, I support anything that would, that would bring us toward that goal. And uh, I, anything else is destructive. And, and, and it's really a backwards view of, of where this world is going. And so I, but unfortunately, all this stuff is going to be apparent very soon. I mean, we see it. You know, there was a, well, the story today, this year was the, you know, fourth warmest on record or something. I don't know. I mean, all of this stuff is coming with a, with a price. Um, and, and, you know, trout rivers are closing now earlier because of warm. I mean, you know, as a fisherman, you're going to, we're all going to see this stuff firsthand. And I don't think it's going to be, I know it's not going to be for the best. So, no. uh, without trying to get too depressed about the whole thing, but <laughs> I guess Back to back to the book and, and I, I guess the the fracking battle. I mean, battles can be won. It's a lot yeah. of work, and and there was a whole army that was mobilized about this. People that were never involved in this stuff, myself included, who wound up. You know, I would never think like I'm going to take a day off from work and drive to friggin' Albany and meet with the fish. Was the last thing I wanted to do, but like, hey man, I'm doing it for the trout and the warblers and all the rest. That's what I got to do. Well, so I want to maintain this bucolic landscape it's what i got to do well i mean and, and to your point i mean you know as you said you know it, it does kind of get depressing and, and I, I i agree with you but i think that's a an underlying theme i think is the power of um activism and the fact that you you still it, it 
it is not only worth fighting for the battle can can be won you know i think that's yeah that's the message you know it's like this is yeah you know you could get depressed to the point be like well it doesn't really even matter what i do like this is just the way things are happening but that's just not true and so if if you decide to take a, a stand on something and believe in it and um find out the that hey there's more people that have similar views then it's not just a Hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do uh, what what we're gonna do, regardless of your feelings. You can actually win the battle, and that battle was won um, thanks, you know, to your efforts, and I'm sure many other people in the area who were against fracking for the sake of the love of of, of the land and and the impact yep. it's gonna have on it. Yep, absolutely, and um, and it's good to see c- companies out there. Um, that are really starting to do the right thing, like um, the podcast you had with the CEO of Patagonia. You know, like they're I, what an admirable thing they're doing. You know, I mean, all all around. Um, you know, they took their tax cut and they donated it, which was awesome. But like the whole view of their their products and and fixing products and not just getting a new one because there's a little pinhole in your waiters and all that. I mean, I just love that. And like I own a pair of Patagonia wares, proudly own them. And um, that'll be the only pair of waders I ever buy again, you know. And plus, I'll say the the waders they've <laughs> the waders I own, um, the longest lasting waders I've ever had out of like the fifty pairs of waders I still have. These Patagonia waders they're friggin' bulletproof. So <laughs> whatever. I mean, I and I just love their whole philosophy. And 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 the other person you had from Costa sunglasses. I mean, it's great the stuff they're doing, recycling, fishing net. I mean. The it's it's really inspiring to see there are companies out there that are really committed to doing the right thing, and God, we should all support them however we can. Absolutely, and and similarly, the same with your book. People, should, <laughs> you 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 should go buy this book because it is a uh, a cast in the woods is a um, not only a, a really I I thought hilarious book, but um, the like I said, you know, not, not to, to repeat what it, everything, but you know, the 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 success story. Those are the stories that have to be shared to just keep your sanity. Right. You know, I mean, and just the the whole message of hope that you know you can you, you don't back away from it. You 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 take it on and confront it. And um, at the end of the day, if you hadn't won that battle, I'm sure you would have slept just as well, knowing that you did what you could. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And um, and there are fishing stories in the book. It's not just about yeah, fracking. yeah. By the way, everyone, uh, this is not a two chapter book about fracking and mice. <laughs> <It> just <laughs> and mice, yeah. And it was the thing that the thing about the, the the fishing chapters, which are all like journal entries, you know. And the reason I put them in there was because um, they're like at the end of each of the chapters about fracking, and there's a whole thing about floods that we can talk about, um, which could be climate change related, probably is. But anyway, I end all the chapters with with the fishing journal entry because it was always like no matter how bad things got, you know, when it really felt like they're going to start fracking, you know, tomorrow. I would, and I'd feel really bad. I would like go out in the Delaware and catch like a 20 inch brown and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to, it would like recharge me, you know, it's like, it would remind me why you're there and what you're fighting for and all this stuff where I'd catch like a, you know, a brook trout under in my little brook under perfect conditions, a little 
gem of a six inch trout and I go, Oh yeah. Okay. That's why I'm up here. That's why you got to keep fighting. And so I do get into some of the fishing adventures in great detail. And it was important for me, um, having lived through the experience and writing about it, I kind of needed to do that because I had to remind myself I'm a fisherman and the reason I'm up here is to fish. And, and that's the thing that I'm trying to celebrate. And, but yet at the same time, I'm casting with one hand and like fighting off all of these threats and stuff with the other. And I guess that's kind of what it's about. Well, well that too, you know, is, is an interesting point is the, you know, you talked about birding, which I enjoyed, which I want to get more into, which I just, I, I've, I, I have not yet, admittedly, but it's something that's super interesting to me. I, I have a young daughter, and I'm like you know, I want to be able to be, see what that is, you know, and point it out. And yeah, yeah, there um, you go. And so, but that said, you know, you, with with the flooding, fracking, burning, fishing, you know, I, the, what's interesting about that to me too is is the 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 understanding of the interconnectedness of everything, and and you know, more thinking in terms of. Um, I had a conversation, um, where I did another podcast interview recently and we, we talked about that, you know, the ecosystem and, and holistic thinking in terms of, you know, it's not just about the fish, it's everything that is associated with it and it's all connected. You know, you can't, if, the, the same with the flooding, the same with, oh, well, we start fracking. Well, that doesn't just impact the fish. There's going to be birds that don't come. Well, what? What does that mean? What does that yeah. do to the insect population that the trout eat? You know, it's all, you can't have it your way one way. You know, it, it's, it, right. you know, everything has a ripple effect. And, you know, again, I learned all this stuff firsthand. Just, again, buying a cabin and thinking, oh, I'll just fish. It's going to be great. I'll just fish all the time. Perfect. Fish, 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 fish. And then, so I have this series of floods and I write about this. And so I have, there's three floods in three years, right? And the first one, this is like two years after I get to the place. I have like two years of just kind of blissful, yay, everything's cool. And then I get the first flood. That's a hundred year flood. That's what they call it. And then that's in year one. And year two, I have a 500 year flood. And then year three, I have a 700 year flood. So if you, if you do the math, I have 1300 years of floods in three years, right? Which is, you know, and, um, or is it exacerbated by climate change? Probably, I don't know. So the 700 year flood destroys my stream. Yeah. Just destroys it. It looks like the LA river, like the Los Angeles river. you know, like that drainage ditch from the movie Greece, you know, that's what it's smaller, but that's what it looks like. There's no veggie. All the hundreds of shade trees are gone. Um, there's no vegetation in the banks. All the, pools fill in all you know all the trout pools are all like an inch deep all the insect life's gone all the trout are gone it's just dead it's a dead looking i mean the the day i came i came up there after that 700 year flood was one of like the worst days of my life looking at that stream and just going like oh my god it's completely gone and i could have said screw it sell the place lost by right. or I or I could have said oh, I'll stay up here and then like I'll tell my grandkids like hey see that drainage ditch there used to be brook trout in there <laughs> or I could like try to restore the, the friggin stream and so that's what I did and and I I wrote I, I read all these books about restoring streams and I went to all these websites and I spoke with experts and I learned about basically tree planting that's how you restore you know that's what trout unlimited does when they restore streams you know they, mm -hmm. they stake willows and dogwoods and all this all these 
species that, that provide shade and armor the banks and prevent erosion. So I plant hundreds and hundreds of trees and they slowly, they slowly grow back because of the soil now is most basically just rock because of the flood. And, uh, and, but they do, they do grow back. And then the stream kind of, this takes this over the course of two years, it kind of re-engineers itself. And I get to see this firsthand every time there's like a rainstorm and the stream goes up a little, I look and it's like, wow, it scoured out a little bit of a pool there. And then, you know, and then, oh wow, these willows are coming in and providing a little shade. And then two years after this flood with this drainage ditch, lifeless drainage ditch, I, I looked at this pool I'm like, oh, that's an interesting looking pool now. And I get my fly rod. I hadn't made a cast in the stream in two years. And I make a cast and a brook trout comes up and I land this six inch brook trout. And I'm like, oh my God, complete. And they recolonize because the upper part of the stream beyond my property wasn't as destroyed and they must have somehow recolonized. And it was incredible. But getting back to the whole interconnectedness of it. So I realized that trout streams, I thought, you know, before, this is all before any of this stuff, I was like, yeah, trout streams like water, bugs, and trout. You know, that's all it is. You know, right. Oversimplification. And then I realized, well, actually, it's like so, it's here in the east, northeast, it's so reliant on trees. Trees are such an integral part of a trout stream because they shade the stream, they they prevent erosion, and they provide cover, you know, like root root wads and then trees that fall in the stream. The trees are like so critical that. So then if you want, if you're planting trees and you want your trees to flourish, what do you need? Well, you need birds and you need birds because birds eat all the pest insects and then birds will like reseed and drop seeds along the stream. And then, okay, like what else? So you need birds and what else do you need? Well, deer will browse your seedlings to nothing. So you need like, you need black bears to feed on the deer, you know? And so it's all interconnected. And it was so cool when I realized like, I am like a steward now. I'm not just a fisherman in this of this little stream. I'm like a steward of these 14 acres, and I got to keep everyone happy. Everyone, you know, and starting with the trout and working my way along, you know, and everything from like toads that eat the bugs, that eat the trees, that you know could potentially eat the trees, and you know, and so it it just be, and and it's so it became so fascinating and fulfilling. And so much beyond just fishing to realize that. And it makes like, it's just so much, it's like a so much more profound experience now to go out of my little stream now that it's come back and it has, you know, it's a beautiful stream once again. And it's, it's full of little trout and, uh, it's such a more profound experience to go out and fish it and look and go like, Oh, I planted all those. That's cool. And then like, you see the warblers, you're the warbler singing overhead and, you spook a little pickerel frog that jumps in and you flip a rock and you see a spring salamander. And it, it's just like, it's so, it's like a deep, profound experience. Now it's great. I love it. No. And, and, and that was what I got out of it too, was just reading it. Like, you know, it, it was inspiring to me to be like, you know, God, like I, I want to, you know, I want to know more about you know my own backyard, you know, like what, what is this? You know, what, yeah. what, what do I need to, you know, it, 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 it was, um, really inspiring and i i um highly recommend anyone um listening to to check it out i I do have um a question for you though because this i also want to be be uh cognizant of your time but i i I, uh 
I wonder, are there any, so like with tree restoration, like you mentioned that you, you know, had to talk to experts and stuff, were there any books about that that, that, that you can recall that maybe you recommend? Because I'm just interested in it, like, just like, oh, well, how do you, well, yeah. how, how can I learn more about that or, or, or birding or anything like that? Are there any, any of those types of books that you recommend? Um. I got in touch with a guy from Trout Unlimited who was really helpful, oh, and cool. uh, he put he put me in touch with all of these resources. And there's like symposiums on restoring streams, and um, the U.S. Forest Service has these online booklets and stuff. And um, the Soil Co- Conservation Service does a lot. You know, they do a lot of work on, on restoring streams. The Fish and Wildlife Service has various programs. So, I mean, most of the research you could do nowadays would be online and but i mean i think my first stop would be trout unlimited because like that's what those guys do you know and they're they're good at it and they they know the resources um the one book that was very valuable um i don't even know if it's still in print was called restoring streams in cities and um yeah and the reason i got that book was because my stream looked like the los angeles river so it was like it looks like a, it looks like an urban stream now it's got no vegetation nothing so and that's where i learned about um staking willows which is where you get a you get a i thought this was so fascinating um willows uh you can just take a cutting you could take a, a branch of a willow as long as it's like more like you know maybe like an inch uh wide and cut it into a stake, like a foot-long stake, and tap it into the ground as far as you can, and do it in the in the um, when they're dormant. You do it like in the late fall, and in the spring, you'll get a brand new willow tree will root and come up from that and grow quickly. And um, it's amazing. I thought it was like a magic trick, and so. I remember the first stream restoration bit I did was I staked 50 willows, which is a lot of work, staking into that rock. It took a long time. And now those those willows, some of those willows are like, I don't know, 20 feet tall now, really? and they shade the stream, and they armor the banks. The thing about willows is their roots are really fibrous, so they you want something that's going to not erode your bank. That's what you do. So, you know... There are a lot of resources out there. In terms of uh, birding, I got this, the, the secret to birding is find someone who's really good at birding and go with them. <laughs> right. That's the secret. That's how I learned how to bird. I, and then you just go like, what's that? What's that? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, that one sounds exactly like that. And they go, well, no, actually, it's a little different. You know, all right. So it's like hanging out with a good trout fisherman, you know, that's, that's, how, that's a great way to learn. It's like it's, it definitely helps the learning curve rather than like, trying to figure out on your own but well that's sort of where i've like hit a dead end with it you know it's like well i wouldn't say say a dead end i'm just like i just there's just no way like i don't don't know i I, like like in the book when you were like you know were able to like verbalize what something sound like a bird sounded like you know like this bird sounds like he's saying this it was like yeah Yeah, that's awesome but like they kind of all sound not similar but you know what i mean like it's different (laughs) it's hard to distinguish i'm like well yeah what is that yeah you got to train your ear like anything. Yeah. Like, you know, train your ear. Like tying a fly. You know, the first time you did it, you're like, what the hell? Like brain surgery. And now you're, you know, you probably whip them out by the dozen. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, if you could, um, you know, I, I guess leave a message for um, for anglers out there, um, 
you know, related to conservation or climate change or environmentalism, whatever that message would be, I guess, that you wish, because uh, we kind of talked about, you know, like, God, like, how, how are there some, like, it's kind of disappointing that you're like, how, how could you support some of this? Um, what, what, what message would you leave for someone to maybe try and um, convince them otherwise that, it, that you know, it, it's worth the effort and it's worth protecting? Well, um, I think uh, do it for selfish reasons, because if you don't, I mean, seriously. No, I, I love you know, it. I love I, it. I love it. I, it's, it's true. Yeah, if, if you don't, you're going to lose it, you know? I mean, it's like, again, there are all sorts of um, folks out there who, who look at the resources that we want to protect and preserve, look at it in a in like, how do I make a buck off this by exploiting it and not in a sustainable way, in a non-sustainable way. And then also, um, you know, in terms of uh, fishing, you know, I think back to when I started fishing in um, the early 1980s, I started saltwater fishing in the Northeast. And um, there's several species that I used to fish for that are, they're just they're basically extinct. I mean, like winter flounder, um, which we used to catch in abundance, um, they're gone. I mean, I couldn't catch a winter flounder if you, you know, maybe I could, like, if I spent like three weeks, maybe I catch one. Um, then there's other fish like whiting, which is this, you know, it's this saltwater fish that used to run in the surf um, in the Northeast. Like, we haven't you, done I couldn't catch, you could, get, it's a different kind of whiting. Okay. Uh, this That's is, this is called a silver hake. Um, you guys have a, I think it's a Southern Kingfish, which is, you know, it's one of these like local names. There's like a million different, like Bonita. There's like six different fish called Bonita, but the whiting I'm talking about is also a silver hake. I don't know the Latin name of it, but they used to run in the surf in the Northeast where I grew up fishing. And, uh, you could give me a million dollars and I couldn't catch a whiting now. They're just gone. They are gone. And so, you know, and they're gone probably because of climate change and overfishing some combination. So, you know, if things were different 40 years ago, I don't know, maybe I'd still be catching whiting. So I would just tell people you got part of fishing is no longer just like catching a fish and going home and forgetting about it. You gotta, like I was saying, rep, rep your water or rep your species or whatever. Cause there's constantly threats. I mean, striped bass are now in very low numbers where I am and no one, you know, maybe overfishing who knows why. I mean, it's depressing stuff. I don't know what I, you know, now in November nights, I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I used to be out sport casting and or fly fishing for bass, and now they're not around. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? But then there's other fish that are doing really well, like the wild trout fisheries and the Catskills right now are doing great. So let's let's work to preserve them and save, and protect them. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a, 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 a positive note to, 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 to end on. Um, and I would just like to say, you know, thank you for, um, for writing your book. I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to pick up your other, uh, uh, other two as well. Um, but also really appreciate you just taking some time to talk with me about this. I mean, this is sort of the, what I, you know, I like when I talk to a company, like maybe someone who works for a company, we talk specifically, about climate change, but what I like about this is seeing how um, things like fracking impact the environment 
before you burn the fuel. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's not like the supply chain where it's like, hey, I'm gonna you know use fuel to ship everything, and um, it takes energy to go into the production of it. It's just this is this is pre um, pre product, I guess. You know, and you it's see, dirty from the start. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so this was a, to me was a really um, was really engaging and interesting. So. I, I, I do appreciate your, your time. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler podcast. For more episodes and to stay current with the latest, don't forget to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.